what is accountability broadly speaking? Who has it? And if the buck stops here, where is here? And that, that is a very complicated and convoluted question in this very complex web that's been woven through these questionable legality uses of force situations that, that drones are often associated with. Guided by nothing but the law. The suffering caused by these crimes remains until today. What can we do? This has been a long and complex trial. This is Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net. All rise. Hi, I'm Janet Anderson. And I'm Stephanie Vandenberg. You know, there was this really extraordinary moment just recently when this top US military commander apologised for a mistaken drone strike in Afghanistan. It was meant to be a retaliation against ISIS-K forces in Afghanistan because 13 Marines and at least 170 Afghans had been killed at the airport uh, just a couple of days before during the scrambled evacuation of Afghanistan. So let's hear General Frank McKenzie, the top general of US Central Command at the Pentagon. This was Friday, 17th of September, and this is how he kicked off the press conference. Having thoroughly reviewed the findings of the investigation and the supporting analysis by interagency partners, I am now convinced that as many as 10 civilians, including up to seven children, were tragically killed in that strike. Moreover, we now assess that it is unlikely that the vehicle and those who died were associated with ISIS-K or were a direct threat to U.S. forces. I offer my profound condolences to the family and friends of those who were killed. This strike was taken in the earnest belief that it would prevent an imminent threat to our forces and the evacuees at the airport. But it was a mistake, and I offer my sincere apology. So right from the moment that that strike happened, there were doubts about whether they'd actually got the right people, weren't there, Stephanie? Yeah, because not like normal, there were loads of international press on the ground. So there was a fairly immediate investigation. Uh, People were looking out, people like the New York Times went to the ground and found out that that it wasn't an ISIS person who got killed, but a civilian family and the breadwinner even worked for the US forces. And we know that that apology might have been extraordinary and rare even, but the use of drones isn't, is it? No, I think uh, the number of mistakes and civilian deaths of them is quite high. Yeah, we don't know a lot about drones, let's make it clear. Um, But that apology got us wondering about them and wondering about the legal side of them, about the policy side of them. How does international humanitarian law apply? What regulation there is? Who's using them even? About all those things. So we invited Jessica Dorsey. She's an assistant professor at Utrecht University and an associate fellow at the International Center for Counterterrorism in The Hague. She's a managing editor of Opinion Juris, knows lots of things about foreign policy drones. And so uh, you are the person to have on. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Janet. Thanks for having me. And we've also got Aditi Gupta, who joins us from London. Hi, Aditi. Hi. Thanks for having me. And Aditi uh, focuses on security, human rights and counterterrorism and civilian protection. And she's the director of what is known as the 
all-party parliamentary group on drones, also the deputy director of the Women of Colour Advancing Peace and Security. Um, so I'm sure we've got plenty of questions about what those roles are that will come up later. But um, why don't we start off with you, Jessica? Just what's the best definition that lawyers have come up with? Maybe that's the best place to start with what drones are. Yeah, it's... um. A very lawyerly answer I'm about to give you. It really depends on the context, right? But um, I think what we're talking about, certainly with respect to the recent example of what happened in Afghanistan, we're talking about something, um, you can use the term drones, you can use the term unmanned aerial vehicles, uh, remotely piloted aircraft systems. Those are all sort of um, semantically related. And, and oftentimes when I refer to drones, I'm talking about sort of literally the big guns, the big class three munitions carrying systems that loiter over particular locations, carrying out surveillance, feeding into intelligence, decision-making processes, and ultimately sometimes being able to fire off missiles. So that's usually the focus that I use. I use the term drone um, when I'm speaking about these military uses of, of the technology. Uh, when I was talking about that, I'm doing a podcast on drones with my 12-year-old son uh, on the bike to school this morning. We got into a discussion of when is it a drone? So it has to be unmanned. But does that mean there is always somebody uh, at the joystick to how, who has to actually push a button? Or are we also talking about systems that are becoming more artificial intelligence driven or is this the the weapon system where we're always talking about yes it's remote but somebody is piloting it uh, from a distance at this point we still are talking about technology with human in the loop that's sort of the catchphrase that we're, we use a lot of the times so that's where that the semantic discussion about unmanned aerial vehicles can rub some people the wrong way because they're not technically unmanned or unwomaned. There is a person making the call, running the machine from a remote location, and through a decision-making process, literally pulling the trigger, as it were. This is intimately related to the development of the technology as it's going toward further automation. There are also automated systems that are integrated with drones at this point. But right now we're talking about systems where humans are still making the decisions on whether or not to use force. And let me bring Aditi in here. Aditi, you um, have this all party parliamentary group just on drones, or at least that's the name of it. So are you using this kind of legal definition or are you looking at some kind of wider picture of weaponry? So at the at the group, so what we are is where we're basically an interest group for MPs and peers from members of both houses in the UK Parliament to um, come together and um, look at the issues around the use of drones um, and then make interventions in Parliament. We were founded in 2012 because um, the media reports around the use of drones causing uh, you know massive civilian casualties were gaining a lot of traction then. There was a lot of concern in Parliament then. Um, and drones were the term that civil society was using. The military actually hated you using that term because it was too simplistic. Really, um, what it what it kind of boiled it down to a uh, concept that the public could understand. Whereas with the military, they wanted it to be you know it's a remotely piloted air system. It's a unmanned aerial system. So it's not just one thing. And I think that's what Jessica was getting at. It's an absolutely networked phen phenomenon. 
and requires the collaboration of actually many states across different borders with a variety of different actors involved. So you'd have imagery analysts, uh, sensor analysts, um, intelligence analysts, sharing of intelligence across borders as well becomes very complex. So as a group, we started looking at the use of drones, but then looked at how the lessons in terms of legality, transparency, accountability actually extrapolate over to both conventional and other covert forms of using force. So now you see, um, if you don't look at drones in a vacuum, you'll see that the broader package of how force is used by states is uh, coupled with special forces operations raids, intelligence sharing among um, states, partner assistance through training and advice, arms sales even, uh, and it becomes a much more murkier picture where the lines of responsibility and accountability are diffused. And so that's the bigger picture here and where drones fit in it for us. When we talk about diffused lines of responsibility, I'm also thinking very loyally about those things. And it, then it makes it very difficult if so many people are involved to actually point at somebody who makes the decision. Is that also what you see in the kind of legal uh, uh discourse around it, Jessica? Well, yes. Short answer is yes. Um, because when, and, and Aditi did a great job to highlight all of the different players, all of the stakeholders here, it is a very complex web when you're talking about accountability. So let's say something goes wrong, as in a civilian was killed in a, in a conflict area. You have to look at, well, who fired the weapon? What weapon was fired? Who made the decision? Where did the intelligence come from where that uh, decision was made based off of what intelligence? Was that a broader coalition of countries? And if so, whose intelligence fed into the process and what role do they play in the accountability chain? And we're talking about not only intelligence sharing, but we're also talking about infrastructure sharing. For example, the Germans um, offer the Rammstein Air Force Base, where the U.S., that's sort of a relay station for operations going on in Afghanistan. There's also the Sigonella Air Force Base in Sicily and Italy, where the U.S. is running most of its operations uh, focused on Libya. So where is, what is accountability, broadly speaking? Who has it? Um, and, and where, you know, if the buck stops here, where is here? And that, that is a very complicated and convoluted question in this very complex web that's been woven through um, yeah, these, these questionable uh, legality uses of force situations that, that drones are often associated with. We're talking about very complex legality questions. Are there general rules? Are the rules the same for the deployment of these uh, weapon systems? Uh, UK has them. The US obviously is a, well, at least perceived as a big user of them. Uh, are are they all running on the same script of when, when they can deploy them or does every country do it separately? Okay, well, I may cover some of the legal aspects, but I'll let you handle the detail of that. So basically, the most famous use of drones has been by the US government um, after 9-11. And the precedents that have been set have basically expanded um, the definition of what non-conflict is, um, also expanded who can be targeted. So really, it's uh, undermining the established curbs um, on the use of force of when, where and against whom you can use force. 
Um, and I'll let Jessica go through the, the legal finer details on this, but basically it's um, focusing on expanded uh, definition of the notion of self-defense. Um, and what has happened is that the US government has heralded the use of drones uh, as, a, as a way of seeing the whole world uh, as the parameters of its armed conflict with terrorist groups, affiliates of Al-Qaeda. And in terms of who it can target, it has also expanded this uh, massively and it has changed between different administrations. But what you see is really a massive expansion in the use of uh, drones to take strikes outside of armed conflict. And this is something that is not just done by the US alone. So um, you have different countries like the UK, Australia, um, the Five Eyes basically coming together around what was called the Bethlehem Principle. So these were principles drafted by a UK diplomat that ended up justifying the UK's first um, use of an armed drone to um, kill some uh, a British citizen outside of armed conflict and actually expressly against Parliament's wishes. Just before Jessica maybe joins in to explain a bit more maybe about IHL, international humanitarian law, more generally, I just wanted to say Five Eyes is the five different countries who share intelligence. That's UK, US, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. And uh, Bethlehem, I remember, is Daniel Bethlehem, isn't he? You know, he was a senior legal advisor um, in the British Foreign Office who uh, I didn't realise that he'd put together these uh, these particular principles. D- Jessica, w- what do you want to add here? Well, something as an academic with sort of one foot in academy and one foot in practice, um, I find it really striking when we talk about these Bethlehem principles. It sounds very official. I think some people like to think that they're quite official, they were published in a law review article to begin with. Um, and so that can say certain things to, to, to different people, but the idea of the power that these have as they've sort of creeped into foreign policy and decision-making uh, that came from a very non-legal source, somebody sort of opining in a law journal article, as we academics are notorious for doing, have become sort of indeed, as Aditi brilliantly pointed out, the justification for this expansive understanding of where force can be used. If, if we just go back to the basics, we look at the, the UN Charter, Article 2.4 is a blanket prohibition on the use of force in other countries, right? Of course, we know there is a very limited exception outlined in Article 51, and that is self-defense indeed. But before we start going further into the discussion, oftentimes the rhetoric around self-defense is sort of that it's either or. It's either Article 2.4 or it's Article 51, just about the same weight. That's absolutely not the way that the United Nations Charter should be read or, or legally uh, was written, because we know that the point of the UN Charter, looking historically, was to avoid the scourge of war, not to look for loopholes in order to expand it. So when I see U.S. officials, U.K. officials, any officials who are preaching about eminence and self-defense as if it were just as weighty as the prohibition on the use of force. I think with my academic hat on, look, this person, this guy, usually it's a guy, this guy would not pass muster in my first year law class because that's a very faulty legal understanding of the way that the charter reads. But 
as Aditi highlighted, I think it's really important to understand that this is a it's a real departure from settled and established law, the way that drones are being deployed. They are looking for ways to sort of massage and, and go through, I call it legal gymnastics, to justify their use of lethal force, which is a real danger to the established rule of law. Going back to the original question, there is no need for new law. Drones are perfectly able to be regulated under the legal framework that we have. It's a very robust legal framework. Where it gets tricky, of course, and many of my law colleagues, my lawyer friends, don't love to hear this, but it's not the law that's the problem, it's the interpretation thereof, and that interpretation is a very political question. Um, so we lawyers, I think, would do better to wrestle with some of the politics inherent in interpretation, and I think the politicians ought to go back, perhaps, and, and look again at what the legal framework really means in the sense of what it was written to accomplish. I wanted to pull out a bit from the legal side, um, just for a moment, just um, maybe you, Aditi, can give us also just this picture of how big, wide, where, how many we're talking about. I mean, sometimes I seem to seem to see very big figures. We're talking about a lot of drone attacks, aren't we? Um, yeah, so really these started um, around 2001 um, and Air Wars, a monitoring organisation, has actually just released a data set on this. So they've said, based on official US military data, the US has carried out a minimum of 91,340 airstrikes in the 20 years of the war on terror. Um, and then based on their review of credible sources, um, and this is a real area of tension um, and and, and it's the basis of why these figures are so different. But Air Wars has basically said that based on um, the credible sources, they think at least 22,679 civilians were directly killed by US strikes. But the number could potentially be as high as 48,308. Um, 48, and so what are we not seeing uh, when this is being reported um, or what is not being reported. We know that in the case of the Kabul strike, it was rare that there were so many foreign journalists on the ground who could immediately go to that uh, spot that was reported. Are they severely underreported? Are we always missing what is happening with drone strikes? Because that is a large number if you're talking about uh, over 22,000 uh, people. Uh, just from US credible sources. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, in terms of how strikes are reported in the media, often they go entirely on um, government amount announcements. So any sort of strikes that are undertaken will always be um, evaluated according to thresholds of international humanitarian law, so the laws of war, and will always be seen as, you know, these are militants that we killed. Uh, which I think Jessica will probably say that isn't actually a legal definition. There's no such thing as a militant in war. Um, so uh, the, the Yemeni organization Watana, they um, undertook a really thorough, credible, extremely accurate, detailed investigation on 12 incidents of harm, um, made sure that it was, you know, absolutely unquestionable before submitting it to, um, to the US. And the response that they've gotten is uh, out of those 12 incidents, which killed 38 civilians, the US has only acknowledged one of them and has basically said it's legal. So they will not even provide any amends. 
Um, and this is absolutely heartbreaking for people on the ground because you don't have, there are so many flaws in the system, you don't have um, any means for civilians on the ground to report allegations of harm themselves. Though you find this in, in places across the world where drone strikes are taking place. You know, the Amnesty International report on Somalia also you know, gives the same evidence. Um, also, in terms of how the uh, casualties are actually assessed, Without ground troops, um, you know, in in country, it's very hard to get an accurate picture. But there is an element of willful blindness. So you know, you you have um, operations where you only have uh, aerial footage, mostly from drones, um, in terms of conducting pre-strike analysis and post-strike analysis. You know, a very good example is in um, the UK contribution to the um, uh, Iraq-Syria conflict. They were the second largest contributor. And they dropped maybe 4,000 munitions. And they have said that they have only killed one civilian in, in all of those munitions. Um, and, you know, this varies differently from other states. So the US um, has declared 1,400 civilian casualties, which is probably very low. But really, the reason why the UK is even able to say that is they're saying, according to the best of our evidence, the best of our knowledge, we have killed one civilian. So that means when they um, brought a drone over uh, in the pre-strike analysis, they saw buildings, but not the civilians hiding in the basement. When they did the post-strike assessment, they saw rubble, but not the civilians buried in the rubble. So these are the kind of pictures that are getting sent back to state headquarters and they're being accepted without question by um, media, you know, in, in media reports. And then the ways for civil society and civilians themselves to give an accurate picture are being dismissed. Jessica, do you want to join in there? Yes, please, because I think it's really um, an, an opportune moment to zoom in on this particular strike in Kabul. And I was, you know, preparing to talk about this stuff today. I, I looked at the timeline. So the strike happened on the 29th of August. On the 1st of September, the United States first came out, acknowledged the strike, and literally said it was a, quote, righteous strike, unquote. Nine days later, the New York Times, amazing investigative reporting, the visual investigations team came out with piecing together what really happened from footage on the ground open source investigation that questioned that narrative that the U.S. had put out there, right? On the 17th of September, ten, uh, one week passed when the New York Times published. That's when General McKenzie made his statement, walking it back, acknowledging the civilian casualties and that it was a mistake. On the 23rd of September, so yesterday, the United States House Intelligence Committee launched an investigation into how this mistake could happen. Watching that entire timeline, I, as a person who's been doing, you know, looking at drone-related issues for over a decade, I'm astonished by the speed at which we are getting what I would term something resembling accountability and transparency, okay? But the reason that we're getting it and the reason why this is an anomaly is this happened in a highly populated area when the whole world was watching in this humanitarian crisis in Kabul. And because there were people on the ground able to uh, relay footage to the New York Times, the journalists were on the ground, but also, you know, people who lived there were, were submitting footage, etc. That made this a good example that shows me that governments are absolutely able to carry out this kind of 
review, assessment, and in a meaningful time frame and not dismiss it. But they have to want to, rather than having to be pressured every time by the New York Times or any other journalistic outlet. But the fact that this particular example, when the whole world was watching, they were able to do their jobs correctly. And by they, I mean the U.S. government. Thinking of those strikes that Aditi outlined in this 20-year war, the fact that a lot of these strikes are taken in very remote areas where there is no possibility of access for journalists, civil society organizations, or even, yeah, if it wipes out an entire small village, who's left to counter the narrative put forth by the government. And just one small um, thing to add about Aditi's numbers, they are horrific numbers. One thing Air Wars doesn't do uh, is make a distinction between, they, they talk about airstrikes, but they're not just talking about drone strikes. So it's important in the sense that it's not all done by drone. On the other side of it, when it's talking about civilian casualties, it doesn't matter what the methodology is. It's the fact that these these people have been casualties in a war um, that's been raging on for 20 years and will continue to do so despite the U.S. saying that the war is over. Yeah, Aditi, um, you were working with uh, Parliament or with the U.K. government to try and, and change things. What What needs to change about the way armed forces work with these systems? Well, in, in terms of how we've looked at drones, you know, as they've evolved, uh, you know, initially, it was, you know, banned drones, you know, the, the use of them are just so risky and so terrible and causing so much pain um, that they should not be used. But that narrative um, and that campaign has essentially failed. You know, the use of drones has been normalized and it's been seen as now a very essential and central component of um, any military operation. It provides a lot of benefits and it could actually be used for better civilian protection. It has that element of data, it has the surveillance, it has the ability to um, monitor areas for uh, civilian protection. But at the minute, it's not being used to the best of its ability. And that's and one of the things that we um, really campaign for is the raising of um, civilian protection as a top-line priority across all government departments and in all operations. Because currently, you know, as far as uh, we're aware in terms of our discussions with military personnel, it falls um, short. So first you have achieving the military objective, then you have force protection, and then you have civilian protection. And what happens is that in bringing the, that down into a, a, you know, a third category priority, you do end up having misguided and short-term elements of success in military operations. So it's really about turning around the narrative of how do you define success in, in counterterrorism operations and military operations as you go ahead? If drones are going to be used, they should be used um, to protect civilians and to see long-term peace and prosperity. The first step in terms of that is transparency. So there is no information on where drones are used, where they're deployed, even you know how many personnel are manning them. These are all questions that you know if you ask the government, they will say no, no comment, or that would uh, prejudice the security of our armed forces. So the first is transparency so that you can see what the policy is. The second, we would say, is the integration of uh, civilian casualty tracking and mitigation teams. So you have a particular body and structure to accurately assess what harm you're causing um, by using drones, by using airstrikes, in the use of force more broadly. Um, and currently, Lots of countries don't have that, including the UK. And even the US, who does have a very good one, 
is doing a lot of soul searching now, uh, and I think probably will do after the Kabul airstrike, in how it can make that a better source of information. And a key part of that will be bringing in civil society and civilian sources of information and assessing them in the way they should be as credible. And then thirdly, it's about scrutiny. So these uh, kind of strikes are often undertaken outside of armed conflict and in a shroud of secrecy. So, um, you know, parliament is not, um, it's not reported to um, parliament when these strikes are taken, undertaken or facilitated by, by partners. Um, often they are, you know, drones are deployed in non-combat operations, so there's no need for parliament to know. But then that can be very fluid and change into a combat role or facilitate targeted killing or use of force. And so these kind of lines of accountability or democratic um, um, you know, accountability are being undermined. So really it's about beefing up parliament and democratic systems to effectively scrutinise when these operations happen and how they are supposed to be evaluated. I can see you uh, nodding along with that, Sir Jessica, um, and maybe you have some more to add. So um, I'm just thinking about your your way of describing what you saw around the recent Afghanistan strike. And you suggested at the end of that, that yes, it is possible to for governments to investigate. It is possible maybe to make some of the changes that Aditi is, is mentioning. Is it? Are we going to see the regulations change? It is possible. Whether it's probable is a different question. And it's a political question. And I, I, I really applaud. Aditi did a great job to sketch exactly what it is, what transparency and accountability really mean at sort of a granular level. A recent report that I wrote together with Nilza Amaral at Chatham House outlined similar recommendations about oversight, accountability, et cetera, what those really mean. We've been calling for more transparency, more accountability, but we tried to get really practical in our recommendations. One thing I've been trying to do as a lawyer is sort of step outside of my legal framework in order to kind of say, well, all of these different stakeholders who are at the table, they all have different interests. So when I'm looking at, for example, a military actor involved in these particular strikes, I'm thinking, what's in it for him or her. And what's in it for the military oftentimes aligns with things that are in it for civil society or any other actor. It's about the legitimacy of operations or the perceived legitimacy of operations and sort of looking at how we get to that idea of legitimacy of operations. I, in fact, had to visualize it myself through a Venn diagram. And there are three components, one of which is that accountability and oversight that comes from another of the Venn diagram circles, the transparency. So the transparency feeds into the accountability. And then the third circle is the legality or the rule of law. When those three circles overlap, I term it sort of, that's the sweet spot of the legitimacy of operations. It's when the operations that militaries are engaging with reflect the norms and values of the democratic society upon whose behest they are acting, right? And that's very important and crucial in my discussions with military advisors or military actors, they're really interested to let the world know what we're doing is legitimate. And if it is, and it's not up to me to always question, I don't think military actors are acting in bad faith, but if it is legitimate, show your work, right? Show us, do the transparency, do the accountability angles, show us that your rules of engagement are in line with international legal obligations, and then we can follow your line of thinking and understand that these strikes have gone through a very complex process 
in order to avoid civilian casualties to the greatest extent possible. When we push for that particular uh, level of information, often it's met with pushback again on the grounds of national security. We're not asking to see the playbook. We're not asking for that level of detail that's going to talk about where the next strike is about to occur so that the quote-unquote terrorists are on notice. But when you carry out these pre- and post-strike investigations, show that what you've done is in line with your international legal obligations. That is where I think parties, stakeholders at the table can come to agreement. But back to your very original question, it is possible, yes, but if it's probable, that is a question that requires much more mobilization around it. The reason it happened in Kabul, as I outlined earlier, was that the whole world was watching. What happens when the whole world isn't watching? Well, we've seen it over the last 20 years. We've seen a whole lot of no action. And, and, and that, that can stop because we've seen the capabilities of governments to own up to it and to take the steps to sort of make it right when mistakes are made. But we've got to, and I think that's a job for civil society, it's a job for academia, it's a job for politicians, it's a job for everyday citizens to request and demand more from their elected officials. One thing that, one question that arises uh, in my head when I hear you both speak is this has been, uh, you know, we have these drones and these kind of unmanned uh, strikes with unmanned, unmanned weapon systems for 20 years. So are there any cases where this has been tested in court already? Because um, there's court cases about the use of military force. Uh, there is one about Afghanistan that's going on in the Netherlands right now. That is not with drones. But do is there like a seminal drone court case that is either going on or have we just not gotten to that point yet? So the, the court case that springs to mind for me is um, the court case be between uh, Germany and uh, Faisal bin Ali Jabba, which basically uh, asked the German government to do more to um, make sure that any German assistance that facilitates drone strikes in Yemen that killed his family. Um, and this was actually foreshadowing. So this was looking back at the track record of US drone strikes in Yemen, um, saying that the, the continued support of Germany in terms of, um, in terms of facilitating US strikes risked life and limb to the civilians in Yemen. And so that case was getting somewhere. It was getting somewhere last year um, in terms of the, um, the court found that not only, uh, this was the first case that found a, a European state playing a central role in facilitating um, US drone strikes, but also that the, these drone strikes were either um, were partly unlawful and and the basis of that was that they found the US's uh, interpretation of self-defense as unlawful as the basis of all of their drone strikes so this was actually a very important case um, but obviously it has been appealed it is going through the stages and it may not come to the conclusion that you know civilians really need in Yemen um, so it's one to watch and uh, but when it came out you know there was a lot of hope that finally you know a court has seen that you know even assisting states need to do more in terms of um, their obligations to the right to life of the civilians in the places where um, drone strikes are undertaken. Um, Jessica did you want to add something uh, about this case? Yeah thanks um, just to get a bit more depth to that case that Aditi just outlined. Um, essentially, there were five really positive, I'd say positive in the sense that the law has a role to play here um, to take away from that case. 
The court found there that Germany does have jurisdiction over the drone strike conducted by the U.S. by the virtue of Germany's assistance, okay? It played a central role to these strikes, okay? And Germany can't then abdicate its duty to protect the right to life of those who were targeted. It also found that there was no basis in international law for the preemption basis to self-defense, which is something that we hear over and over that, that, that this is allowed, but this court found that otherwise. Germany has a duty to invest greater effort to ensure respect for international law by U.S. military operations involving German territory. So that's the Rammstein Air Force Base we talked about. So these are groundbreaking findings, and indeed they are being appealed. The last two were also quite groundbreaking, that the assurances that the U.S. had given about the legality of activities undertaken through Rammstein Air Force Base, those are insufficient. Germany has its own independent duty to investigate this kind of uh, activity going on vis-a-vis its own territory. And finally, assistance to those unlawful strikes is a matter of law and not politics. So just trying to use foreign policy to justify um, a hands-off approach was not enough, according to the court. And so, again, yes, it's being appealed. Perhaps it's going to be overturned. But the fact is, we're seeing the law being interpreted in a way that is in line with what we have been doing this for a long time, is in line with international legal obligations, which is a positive and promising sign and something that will be used, I think, as a stepping stone for other um, legal action in the future. I'm going to ask us to wrap now. Um, Usually we ask if you've got anything else to say. Usually we ask whether, you know, we're throwing in a question about the future. But I'm actually going to call a halt to both of those questions at the moment because I'm sure we could just go on and get more and more detail. But I've got enough to process on this just for the moment. So apologies. Um, We'll bring you back, promise, for another podcast if we need it. And I'm just going to ask you our final, final question that we always ask people who take part in this podcast. What is it that you are reading? What is it that you're listening to? What is it that's on your Netflix queue that you'd like to share with us? And it can be drone related, it can be law related, or it can be completely unrelated. Let's uh, start with you, Aditi. What what are you up to in your when you're not appearing on podcasts? Um, well, at the minute, actually, the, the book I'm reading is not drone related. It's not work related, um, but it's uh, it's called Zami, a new pronunciation of my name by Audre Lorde, um, which is an incredible book that I, I urge everyone to read um, in terms of looking, finding yourself and finding yourself in your work and in your life. And Jessica? Well, that's fortuitous that you are looking into how to find yourself. I also um, am reading a book that's completely not drone related. Um, It's about ikigai, which is a Japanese uh, term about, yeah, how to find your purpose or your calling in life, as it were. And relating to something I mentioned earlier, it's about a Venn diagram as well. So apparently I'm into Venn diagrams these days, but it's about that sweet spot, your ikigai, being at the cross section of what you love, what you're good at, what you can be paid for, what the world needs, um, your passion, your mission, your profession and vocation kind of going into that center. And I'm trying to find my ikigai. Well, we we found a bit of our ikigai in podcasting, haven't we, Janet? 
maybe maybe i it does sound a bit like an icky guy to me <laughs> so i'm a i'm a i'm not too sure whether i want to find an icky guy um enough of those to go around i'd say yes um so um uh, maybe I'll I'll have a look at that one. But honestly, no, they do sound like two very interesting recommendations for our listeners. Um, we also had to wrap up quite quickly because Stephanie also told me that she's definitely got to go, go on to her, her next thing. Tell us, just as we finish now, are we going to have to bring you back for a big change in, in everything that goes on with drones, Aditi? Is everything going to change? I mean, that is the dream. That is what we've been working for all of these years. Um, And you can only hope. I think that is actually a window of opportunity with this Kabul um, drone strike and with also just the fact that the limits of what states can do without scrutiny and without kind of public outrage seem to be being pushed. And that's a thing of hope. Jessica? I like your hopeful note there, Aditi. I'm not sure if I'm hopeful, but I say yes, always bring us back. If for nothing else, a reminder for states to follow these obligations. It's something we've been, pardon the pun, but droning on about for many years. The thing is, we've got to find a better way to do our advocacy so that it lands better. So part of that is on us in civil society or academia. But the other part is really it's states stepping up and taking that responsibility in their own interests, again, highlighting their own legitimacy of operations. Thank you very much for taking this time and sorry to hurry you along. Uh, just in the in the interest of fairness and also to not shame work-life balance, the next big thing I have to do is pick up my, my son from school. So uh, that's why it's important that I leave exactly on time. But uh, I could also, just like Janet, talk about this for hours because there's so many sides to it. So thank you so much for taking this time to talk to us. And, and we'll, as soon as there's another drone strike, we'll, we'll, we know your number and we'll ask you again. I'm sure there will be other drone strikes. Oh, you can't say that. I mean, there seem to be thousands, Stephanie. So let's bring back when we've got a change in drone strike policy, not when there's another drone strike, okay? I mean, that might be never. I don't know. Thanks very much, guys. We'll find a balance. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was produced in partnership with JusticeInfo.net, an independent site covering justice efforts for mass violence. Music is by Audionautics.com, and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on AsymmetricalHaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word.